2: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And we've got a different podcast for you this week. We've got a reunion of the New York football general managers from 2006. What in the world could that be? Well, this week you're going to hear from Mike Tannenbaum, who was the GM of the New York Jets in 2006 and for a lot longer. And then you'll also hear from Ernie Accorsi, the general manager of the New York Giants uh, for many years, ending in 2006. They were together in New Jersey at the same time for one season. And I had them on, there's a connective tissue between them. So with Tannenbaum, it's all about what do you do if you're Nick Casario right now, the Houston Texans general manager? How do you handle this situation? So he'll talk a little bit about what he would do uh, if he were Nick Casario right now, and if he were the Houston Texans. Then we're going to get historical perspective from Ernie Acorsi, who's really one of the best football historians in the United States. Um, and he goes back to, I mean, when he was very young, he remembers watching Otto Graham for the Cleveland Browns, and he was a big Johnny Unitas guy. Uh, in Baltimore, and got to know him very, very well. But he talked about the, you know, basically what an outlier a Deshaun Watson trade would be, and we went over a bunch of trades in NFL history. And so I think you'll get both the today uh, part of the Deshaun Watson story, whether he's traded or not, and then you'll get the the historical perspective of the first hundred and one years of the NFL and how quarterback trades, there may never have been one uh, like there may be, and who knows, Houston may not trade him. But just it, it's such a historic time now uh, with Deshaun Watson and basically with quarterback movement in general. Before we get to that, you know, there's one thing that this, this week always is, okay, as we get into it, you know, as you download this hopefully or listen – it's February 24th, it's Wednesday, this would be the week of the scouting combine. And for many who are kind of draft nerds, this is really the kickoff of draft season, quite honestly. Kicked off a little bit early this year because uh, Trevor Lawrence, the Clemson quarterback, uh, had his workout a couple of weeks ago, and he had it early because obviously he was going to have shoulder surgery So he wanted to be able to throw left shoulder surgery. He wanted to be able to throw uh, before he went in and had that surgery. But usually this is the week that the mania starts. 1,200 reporters, about 1,800 NFL employees total uh, will go to Indianapolis. And you'll get the best 330 players who are going to be entering the draft in late April. And the reason I'm bringing it up today is that I called a couple of agents this week uh, and one general manager just said, how is your how's your world going to change? How, how is it going to be different this year? And one of the agents is a guy named David Cantor. He's been in the business for 25 years. He's from South Florida. He's had a lot of really good players. He's got Xavier and Howard right now, for instance. Um, he's got uh, Olivier Vernon, he's, he's got a lot of good, good players. But he goes to the combine every year, and in the span of five to seven days, he told me, I get more work done in this week than I do in all the other weeks combined during the year. And the reason is that everybody he does business with, everybody you know, in the NFL, the coaches, the GMs, the personnel people, the owners, uh, he sees them all. And, uh, you know, I, that is going to be what's really going to be interesting because last year COVID did not really strike until the middle of March. The scouting combine was, went on as normal. And so this year is going to be the first year without it. The two places that I think it's really going to show in uh in in what happens over the next few months number one is in free agency very simply uh agents and even some veteran players who go to the combine you know they say they go to the combine just to you know just to see what it's like but really they're they're a little bit on display there too and uh they they want to know where their next job is going to be too. So, but mostly it's agents, it's agents feeling out teams for all of these players. And that really isn't going to happen this year. David Cantor made a great point. He said, look, you know, I'm sitting at a restaurant in downtown Indianapolis. The workouts are over inside the, uh, you know, Lucas oil stadium for the night. And, And then it's 11 o'clock at night and the coaches and scouts and and everybody are coming into the bar or coming into the restaurants. And so he just basically sits there and greets people or goes to somebody's table or goes here. And so he said, I get to talk to every person in the league who I need to get to. And now doing it on the phone, it's just a different thing. And plus, you know, I, if you're talking to, basically three or 400 people uh, in the course of this time that you're in Indianapolis, you're just not going to be able to get those people for that amount of time all on the phone. So that's different. I think the one other thing this year is different with the lower salary cap is you're going to see an awful lot of players balk at signing low contracts. And so I think what you're going to see is in May, early June, the market will be flooded with middle-of-the-pack NFL players. And I mean flooded. And I think you're going to see smart teams like the Patriots. Bill Belichick loves middle-class free agency. He may just sit there and pick off maybe one star, maybe an Allen Robinson. But then he'll just wait and wait and wait. And then he will go get the middle class free agents, 12 or 15 of them. He's got enough cap room to be able to do it. So that is where I think you're going to see a little bit of a game change in the 2021 NFL offseason. Now, let's go to my conversation with Mike Tannenbaum, uh, the former general manager of the Jets. EVP of the Dolphins, been in the league a while. Uh, and he's really got a handle, I think. He's plugged into a lot of teams. He's got a handle of how he would handle uh, the whole situation with Deshaun Watson in Houston. Back in the podcast with Mike Tannenbaum, the uh, former general manager of the New York Jets from 2006 to 2012. And then the uh, Miami Dolphins executive vice president of football operations. After that, Mike, you now run a think tank called the Thirty Third Team, which is really, really an interesting thing, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but I'm I'm really curious because you know this week basically I had Ernie Accorsi talk about the history of quarterback movement, and now I want to talk about more of today. And what's happening right now. And I know you're a big believer that we might be on a sort of a tectonic shift in how the NFL treats quarterbacks.
3: Yeah, no question about it, Peter. And it's great to be with you and I appreciate you having me. If we were sitting here 12 short months ago, we're talking about this great 10-year extension of the CBA that's great for the sport between the NFL and the NFLPA. And obviously that was pre-pandemic. And then obviously Last year was an incredible year in so many ways, most importantly, with the safety and well being of so many. With that said, Peter, I think really what we're on the complete precipice of is the NFL going through this, as you mentioned, tectonic change from a standpoint that if quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, we've seen it already with Matt Stafford, we may see it with Dak Prescott, move teams while under contract with the obvious exception of of Dak Prescott we are seeing something we have really never seen which is player-led changes while under contract which we have never seen before it always was about getting years on a contract if you're with a club and if it's a great player that was job one and once they were under contract the rest was history and to me that's really what's so fascinating and more specifically Peter What's interesting to me is Cal McNair. Like, Cal McNair is the story here. Six short months ago, Deshaun Watson signed a contract, which, by the way, was after they traded DeAndre Hopkins. So if I'm Cal McNair, I want to know exactly, Deshaun, what happened? Why are you so aggrieved? And more importantly, how can we fix it? Because you are the most important person in the Houston Texan franchise. It's not the head coach. It's not the GM. It's not me. It's you. And we're going to work really hard to fix it. And if Deshaun Watson would five years to go in the prime of his career switch his team, that is truly historic.
2: You're right, Mike. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've done in sort of doing my research on this, there's only been one really great 25-year-old quarterback ever traded in NFL history, and that's Steve Young. And he wasn't great when he was traded, he became great after he was. He was a lousy Well, I shouldn't say this. He was probably a victim because he was on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1987. He was, uh, he was, he played poorly, but he was surrounded by a really bad team. They traded him to the 49ers. The rest is history. But my biggest issue with Deshaun Watson right now is exactly what you just said. The Houston Texans, in a four month period, starting on Labor Day weekend, paid Deshaun Watson $27 million. And then it's like he woke up on day one of month five, and I'm exaggerating, and was all of a sudden the angry young man who doesn't want to be in Houston anymore. And I absolutely agree. I, I, I don't see how any team right now can sign a player to a contract that basically is as you say it's it's now it's he's got 5 years left on this contract in the final 4 years essentially you know we're going to pay him an average of 39 million dollars a year but i don't see how anybody signs a quarterback to a contract knowing that they can just simply wake up one morning and say i'm not playing here anymore and you have to trade me
3: yeah that is absolutely and that, when you talk to people around the league, that is what is so scary is, again, we're talking about something that six short months ago, this was not something that was 60 months or, or five years ago. And I've been in a situation, Peter, twice with Chad Pennington and Ryan Tannehill, where we had head coaching searches, and in a very appropriate way, very quietly, we had to meet with some of the head coaching candidates. We did it quietly. We did it appropriately, in my opinion, where we told those quarterbacks, you're not making the decision but we would love your feedback. And there's a time and a way to honor an important relationship, which I think Cal McNair obviously could have done. But with that said, Peter, it's still really hard for me to believe that it could go off the rails that quickly and that dramatically. And again, if I'm Cal McNair, I have to fix it. I have to go fly to wherever Deshaun Watson is, sit down with my yellow pad and just listen and try to fix it. But I'm not letting you go. And I think trying to move the story forward now The conundrum for Nick Casario is is this. I would simply say Cal McNair, David Culley, for one calendar year, I don't care what happens. The world can literally blow up, but we are not trading Deshaun Watson. We will get called every name in the book. There could be federal injunctions. Joe Biden could invalidate this contract. We are not trading him because the worst thing they can do is get into September. And if we were sitting here last year, I promise you we could have Doug Marone on saying, Jalen Ramsey's a Jaguar. Well, he was a Jaguar until his back tightened up, and then miraculously flying from Jacksonville to L.A., his back felt a lot better. And in all seriousness, Peter, from a team perspective, you can't be half pregnant. You can't change your mind in September and say, okay, we're now going to trade him to Team X. If you're going to trade him, do it right now. And I know we're going to get into that, Peter, in terms of what they could get for him, but it's a real conundrum for them because they got to be tied to the hip and withstand historic pressure internally, externally, and say, we are not trading this player.
2: You know, I think the other problem that this was raised to me by a current NFL general manager, he said, you know, because I said to him, we were talking, he said, what would you do? And I said, I I wouldn't trade him. You know, I I understand that you could get an absolute bounty and rebuild your entire franchise um, on – April twenty fifth. I get it, but I said I wouldn't trade him, and it isn't just the precedent you would set, but it's simply uh, part of it is the principle that you know you've paid the guy twenty seven million, and he woke up one day, and and through whatever happened, you know he he said I'm not playing here anymore. But I think the larger issue, you when you try to talk about okay, you're going to hold the line, you're going to hold the line. You know, Nick Casario watched Bill Belichick make every decision and a lot of hard ones for 19 years. And, but he's never had to make a tough decision himself, you know, and now he's going to have to make this tough decision. Could be he's already made it and he's done, he's doing exactly what you would say. But, but so I'm going to ask you just from the standpoint if you are Nick Casario. I want to know what you're doing right now when you wake up and go into the office tomorrow uh, here in late February, what are you doing and what are you telling the people in your organization? Well, a couple of
3: thoughts. You know, first of all, what I'm doing is I'm working really hard to meet with Deshaun Watson, his agent, his family, whomever he wants. And I'm meeting him more importantly for symbolic purposes where he wants to meet, because I think that's a manifestation of showing, earnestness, respect. And I've done that before where I want to meet with a player on their terms. So I would try really hard to get that meeting. If they don't want to meet, I'm going to pivot quickly. I'm going to bring in David Cully, Cal McNair, and say, hey, look, he's too good of a player. He's too good of a person. We, We have to keep him. And it's my strong recommendation that we are tied to the hip. And no matter what happens, we're never trading him short of losing this franchise and Roger Goodell, like revoking our charter, he is here. And that's easier said than done because I had some really, really hard moments with Darrell Rivas where it like brings you to tears behind closed doors, like how am I going to get this fixed? And, you know, you feel like the way of the world, like... When you what, was a- your,
2: what was your hardest
3: moment? We had a great team. Uh, we had a team that could legitimately win the Super Bowl. And I felt like, to be candid, Peter... Walking into that building every day, like, I didn't want to be the guy to prevent us from winning a championship, and there were so many people that put so much into it, and Woody Johnson gave me the opportunity to run an NFL team, and I'm like, I got to be smart enough to figure this out. It can't be that hard, and there were really, like, moments where I'm like, I can't get this figured out, and we had really smart people that were helping and we, we looked at it every which way. And Darrell had outplayed a, a six-year contract that was pretty evident. We wanted credit for the remaining years on his contract. They wanted to tear it up. And there were moments, because he was Sean Gilbert's nephew, that I'm like, he may miss the whole year. And me, Mike Cannebombe, is effing up a chance for the New York Jets to win a Super Bowl. And I'll never be able to live with myself. Now, it was also hard for me to compartmentalize those emotions. Because I know if I show those emotions at the negotiation table that's going to come across as being weak, but I'm also human. So that was really some really tough moments for me. Um, And I think likewise for Nick, Nick's a very smart, prideful guy. I think there's a different intangible for Nick, which is this. He's going to try to build a program. What free agent in their mind, uh, in their right mind, Peter, that will have any option would sign with Houston until this is clarified. So, But to answer your question more succinctly, if I'm Nick, I'm saying, fellas, we are going to work our tails off on solving problems we can, which is really about getting ready for the draft, getting ready for free agency. And I think where it really stings is when you have three really good teams in your division, the Colts, the Jaguars, who are going to have Trevor Lawrence and Urban Meyer, and a really good Tennessee Titan team. And how are we getting better? And every day – You know, communication isn't what's said, it's what's heard. And what everyone in that building is hearing is like, we're not getting better. And it's going to test Nick's leadership. And you make a great point. Nick was riding shotgun with Bill, and Nick's a very smart, capable guy. But he's going to have to influence that building with David Cully, and that's going to be a really difficult job.
2: You know, the other part of it, you talk about, you know, uh, it's easy to sit here and say, Hey, just hold the line with this guy. Football, and and you know if you lose this year, you lose. But you're not giving up, uh, Deshaun Watson. You know, on the other hand, you can say that, but but then you've got 53 players and 45 on game day that you're telling go out and risk your bodies uh, and go out and play football, and with AJ McCarron or whoever the quarterback is going to be you know where the guys in that only the guys in that locker room know they're going to stink you know jj watt you know didn't want to be there he walked away deshaun watson doesn't want to be there he walks away those are your two signature players so the the only thing you know i wonder how you can prevent for lack of a better term kind of an open revolt With veterans on your team, smart veterans, Michael Thomas, a real player leader in the secondary. I mean, there's a bunch of guys on that team, and you're going to say to them, hey, guys, for the next four months, go out and lay your bodies on the line for this horrible franchise.
3: Yeah, and to take it a step further, how about David Culley? You're 65. You've waited your whole life for this moment, and you have no chance. You're going against three elite quarterbacks. Well, Carson Wentz, we got to give a grade of incomplete. Trevor Lawrence certainly should be elite. And Ryan Tannehill has been the best offense in football since he's been there. And you're going to go out there with A.J. McCarron. And, again, who – you're trying to create this aura of association. We're seeing it in a historic level in Tampa Bay. Who's going to want to go to Houston? And, to me, David Mooligeta, he's the agent for Deshaun Watson. He knows all that. Like, the pressure will build from inside. And it's going to be fascinating how they're going to handle it because – the, again, the communication out of the building is everything you just said, Peter. No one's going to think they have any chance in the world. And you're trying to establish David Cully, and the exact opposite's happening.
2: And the one other X factor with that is that you talk about how we're we getting better. You're in a horrible cap situation, and your first pick this year in the draft is number 67. It's just, it's just, this is as grim. An off-season, I think, as I've seen any team have in just years. It's absolutely awful. Okay, so now let's just say that they decide whether we think it's right, whether we think it's wrong, that they wake up on April 25th and they say, We're gonna, we're gonna trade this guy. A, what do you think is reasonable compensation? And B, how exactly would a general manager handle a competitive situation like that.
3: Yeah, so here's what's really interesting. There's three teams that, to me, have an immense amount of intrigue. First of all, ironically, it's not like the Mike Tannenbaum reunion tour, but the Jets and the Dolphins really provide like the perfect landing spot for a number of reasons. It's the second and third pick in the draft, and it's multiple first-round picks. So if you're Nick Casario, you need to come out of this with a new franchise quarterback. You don't want to come out of this By signing Jameis Winston. Like you want to get your good, own, young, high ceiling quarterback. One of the things I would do is I would call up the Jets and the Dolphins and say, hey, look, by 4 o'clock tomorrow, I need you to email me or text me your best offer. And don't ask me to tweak it. I am calling the Jets. I'm calling the Dolphins. I need your best offer. And by doing that, here's the psychological sort of angle of it. Imagine, let's just say you're Joe Douglas. After 19 years, Tom Brady finally graduates the AFC East, which I blame my parents for you know, having me 20 years too soon, by the way. Um, but you're Joe Douglas, and now all of a sudden, if Deshaun Watson is a Miami Dolphin, do you imagine if you're the Jets? Now four times a year you're playing Josh Allen and Deshaun, you have no chance. So there's yeah. this total intrigue about the worst case scenario for the Jets is not getting Deshaun Watson. It's if he's a Dolphin. Likewise, if you're Miami – and now you got to play Watson and Allen. Like that is a really hard pill to swallow for either of those franchises. So what I would say if I'm Casario is like in writing. I want your best offer, and I'm not coming back. And now all of a sudden it's like wow. And I think for both teams, it really matches up pretty. To me, it, there's so many similarities here. But it's three number one picks. So it's two this year. And if it's the Jets, it's Quinn and Williams. If it's Dolphins. I think it's probably someone like Christian Wilkins. So if you're Casario, you're getting a young interior defense lineman who's a high-character, impactful player, three number one picks, including either pick two or three. So you, you should come out of this with either Zach Wilson or call it Mac Jones or Justin Fields.
2: Are now, you saying that you don't want Tua or Sam Darnold? I, I don't. I don't want Darnold.
3: I think when you look at it over three years, Peter, I don't see greatness when you look at Deshaun Watson, you see greatness. I right. like Sam, but I don't think he can take – if if you and I had a bet we could raise our families on this question, over a period of time, do you think it's reasonable for Sam Darnold to consistently beat Tannehill, Lawrence, and Wentz? I, I don't like that bet for us.
2: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh. And then, but, you know, I don't think, I don't think if you're talking about three ones and Quinn and Williams, even though one of the ones is the second pick in the draft and you can get Zach Wilson if you want, or, or whoever the, the guy is, I, I really don't know that that's enough. I don't know that that's enough. Uh, I mean, do you think it's enough? Well, it's, it's no. I mean,
3: I, I've said this on record, you know, like, I'm very fortunate to have two kids. I've said it on national TV. I would give up one. It happens to be my salary cap friendly anyway. But if <laughs> I was the Jets and I got Nick Sirianni on the phone, Peter, I am not getting off the phone. Like, I am getting him because if you have Deshaun Watson, you have a chance to win every year for the next 15 years for a number of reasons. He's a great player. He's a great leader. He made plays with his feet. He's super accurate. And like we just saw with Tom Brady, There will be veteran players, especially with a cap going down, Peter, that will be out there that you can certainly recover some of these picks. And, by the way, on a historic – like, when you look at it over a five-year period, on average about 56% of first-round picks make it. So it's not even a certainty Deshaun Watson is. So I think your fundamental premise is a really good one.
2: Is – I get the feeling just talking to people – that Joe Douglas probably doesn't want to do this. And Chris Greer, the Miami general manager, does or would want to do it. But there's one very interesting factor, I think. I wonder if Joe Douglas wouldn't have to give up Darnold and could keep Darnold and try him for one year with a better team and a better organization you have one more year to try him. Uh, I wonder if that would have anything to do with him. Or he could also say, look, uh, the following teams might want Darnold. New Orleans might want Darnold. There might be three or four of the losers in the offseason quarterback derby who would want Sam Darnold. But So, yeah. But, Peter, here's where I see it somewhat differently
3: is it's a little bit of the Trubisky conundrum, which is – if we're sitting in Florin Park right now and we're saying Sam Darnold's a good player, not great. He's turned the ball over at USC and he continues to turn. He has the fifth most turnovers in the last three years. He has the same amount of turnovers as Carson Wentz and twenty less touchdown passes, just to give you context. Hmm. But nobody here is going to think that it's good business to fully guarantee twenty-four million dollars in twenty twenty-two. So we're not going to exercise the option. No one's going to say, hey. We should do that. So now if you're going into his last year of his contract and you're trying to invest in Robert Sala and build something, I think it's really hard to do that because he's going to graduate in a year or you're going to have to pay him really at the top of the market. I, I just to me it just doesn't line up when you have Zach Wilson sitting right there. Um, you know, we looked at this the other day. Like if you look at the players back to back, I just think Zach Wilson's the better football player.
2: You know what's interesting? You're the one last year who said, uh, take Justin Herbert. And you wanted Justin Herbert above all. And you might be right. We'll see about Herbert versus uh, Burrow. Uh, But as I talked to people over the last, I mean, last weekend in particular, here's what was really interesting. I'm talking about four NFL people. Uh, Either general managers or coaches, every one of them had Zach Wilson above both Fields and Lance. And and, and what was the other thing I found interesting is that NFL people really like this Mac Jones, you know, the Alabama quarterback. And, you know, I'm not sure that those top four quarterbacks are going to be the top four. I think Mac Jones might elbow his way in there at some point. I don't know. What do you think?
3: Peter, I will bet you one year of Starbucks. And by the way, my drink of choice is an ice, venti, soy chai latte. If it's 50 degrees or lower, it's warm, okay? And (laughs) that he goes no lower than eight. And all you have to do is look at the body language in Mobile, Alabama, and Matt Rule. So we're down there covering it for ESPNU. And Mac Jones had an incredible week. And just the body language watching Matt rule Coach Mac Jones. There is no way he goes below eight. And I'll buy you Starbucks for a year if he's there at nine.
2: Wow. What am I going to give you if he's not there at nine? We'll have to figure that out. Hey, um, Mike, would you just do me a favor and tell me? I, I, I spent some time with you on one of your Zoom calls, well, three or four Zoom calls uh, for the 33rd team. I thought it was really a cool concept. You've got college kids from UMass, you know, where you teach and where you went. And you've also got a lot of people, um, you know, both uh, ex-NFL coaches, front office people, and people transitioning, like Dan Quinn was out all year. And he is obviously back in with Dallas now. But tell me a little bit about why you founded the 33rd team, and what exactly is your goal with it? Sure. Um, really
3: proud to work with some incredible people. Um, candidly, it makes me a better broadcaster, and there's a lot of young men and women that have a passion to work in football and pursue the same dream that I've been able to achieve, and they do really good research. We do a lot in predictive analytics and performance that really has been very helpful in my career the last two years. And then we have a lot of experienced coaches that are between opportunities. And, you know, I've joked that I'm going to file tampering charges against Jerry Jones because we lost Dan Quinn to the Cowboys. Um, But we (laughs) recently added two very high profile coaches that just came off of the last cycle. Um, I don't know if they'd want me to use their name yet. So but they are as high on the food chain as any names there are in pro football and it's really cool. You know, they're on the calls taking copious notes and it does a couple of things. It helps me. And it also helps young people achieve their dreams, which is something that's really important to me. And it's really something that, candidly, I stumbled into, but what I found, Peter, is there's a real void in the marketplace of all these great coaches that aren't currently with a team that could use some extra hands and staying current or doing research. And, When we first started doing it, it was pre-pandemic. I remember telling my wife, Michelle, I'm like, you know, we're watching film and creating a draft board, and it's actually pretty good on Zoom, and then obviously the world changed, and now these Zoom draft meetings um, are really good. We have personnel directors from all Power 5 conferences, so we have as good of information on character and their hometowns, and um, our draft board, I feel very confident in, in that process led me to believe that Justin Herbert should be the number one quarterback last year.
2: When are you doing your quarterbacks this year? When are you going to uh, go in?
3: We're, we're right in the middle of it. And, Peter, you're always invited. Uh, our calls are Wednesday at 5, and that's just kind of a, to stay current. But we have these uh, draft meetings uh, twice a week,
2: which you're more than welcome to join us. It's called the33rdteam.com. That's the 33rd team. .com. Uh, It's fun just to look at a lot of their analytics, uh, which are right there for you. They do a fun interview every week with um, an NFL person. Um, You'll enjoy their website. It's fun for people who love football.
3: Mike, thanks so much
2: for joining me, huh?
3: Yeah. One last thing. We also did something cool a couple of weeks ago is we had Wade Phillips break down Todd Bowles' game plan from the Super Bowl, And that was really insightful just as a defensive mind. Like what was Coach Bowles looking at, and to see it through the lens of Coach Phillips was uh, as interesting a session as as we've had.
2: What was give me give me one nugget from what he thought Todd Bowles did well in that game?
3: That he 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 could disguise coverages on the back, still rush with four with from different looks, and he can simulate pressure and and really create a lot of havoc just rushing four. So he wasn't vulnerable on the back end. um, And he could do it out of different fronts and bring early on, he brought different pressures. So um, he kind of put a lot out there early and kind of there. But certainly what happened early in the game was very impactful.
2: Yeah. You know, when I talked to Bowles after the game, one of the things he said is, uh, you know, he never wanted Mahomes to be able to get a read on anything they were going to do. And that's, he thought, and you could tell during the games, It during the game, it isn't like you watch a lot Mahomes double pump, but you definitely saw it. And uh, you could tell that he put a lot of confusion into uh, Mahomes' mind in that game. C- completely agree. Mike, listen, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. And now my conversation with Ernie Accorsi, the longtime NFL general manager. And I I look at him now as a great historian of the game. We're going to talk a little bit about all of the great trades and all the great player movement uh, at the quarterback position in NFL history. Back in the podcast, so happy to be joined by Ernie Accorsi, the NFL I was going to say NFL lifer, but he's had so many experiences in all games and in the media, you know, longtime uh, sports writer before he got into the, into the football business, but obviously the former general manager of the New York Giants uh, and the former general manager of the Cleveland Browns has had so many roles in football. But I really wanted to get into with Ernie what we're seeing in the NFL right now, this off season, where we're seeing, we could see an unprecedented amount of quarterback movement. And the reason that I think Ernie deals from a position of expertise on this is that, uh, you know, he has been in the middle of some of the most interesting quarterback decisions and also quarterback trades in NFL history, including John Elway, uh, including Eli Manning. So, Anyway, we'll get into a few a few of those things with Ernie. And Ernie, thanks so much for joining me.
0: George, my pleasure, Peter.
2: Hey, so um, I, I we have not spoken since Marty Schottenheimer died, and I know <laughs> that you were very, very close to Marty, uh, and you were a huge proponent of his over the years. And you know, I know this was no surprise, but you know, this had to be a blow to you.
0: It was, uh, we we spoke a lot, but, but once he retired and I had retired before him, um, we spoke at least once a week, sometimes more than once a week. And about, I, I noticed that the date they gave for his diagnosis was 2014. It was a little after that, that I noticed that, you know, that some of the conversations were a little more difficult. He'd be forgetful, repeat himself, but they continued. And um, in the last, couple of years uh, they were really hard and and I had lunch with him two years ago uh, with Bill Cower and his wife and Marty and Patty they used to come to New York every year and go to some plays and that was the last time I saw him and I walked back to my apartment with Bill and his wife and we both said that you know that was about it was better in person than it was on, on the telephone but that it was very difficult right after that Uh, the call stopped and then I knew he had gone into a facility. So I didn't realize his, his, uh, you know, medical health was deteriorating to that point uh, until, you know, there was an announcement that he went into hospice, but yeah, it was a blow. We were really close. I mean, I was closer to him than any coach I've ever been with. And, you know, from experience that you get good working relationships between general managers and coaches, but rarely do you become close friends where you socialize together, have dinner a lot. Uh, mutual respect is the important thing. But we, we were really best friends. We went to Scotland together, played golf. I always kidded him that he put me through two days, two rounds in one day. No carts, by the way. And of course, it rained blue every day, drove me, to, you know, I was exhausted by the time the week was over. I said I'm never going back with you unless you put right and put in writing that we're going to play one course a day. But he was just <laughs> a, a, a great buddy, and and
2: uh, I really miss him. Yeah, um, it was funny. I talked to Rich Gannon about him, and he told me a story of the time that that when Gannon played for Kansas City, he had one hard and fast, absolute incontrovertible rule do not lie to me and he said that one time uh, there was a guy on special teams who missed an assignment and they ended up getting a punt blocked against the Steelers and they lost by a touchdown it was a punt block that got returned for a touchdown and they lost by a touchdown and he asked the guy specifically what he had done and the guy lied to him so next day when they got in this is a Monday night game and the next day when they had their meeting, the guy was already gone because Marty had gone back to, uh, to his, to his office after the game and watched the tape. And when he watched the tape, he realized the guy had lied to him. And so the next morning he cut him and he said, men, my one big rule, do not lie to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, and
2: uh, so that's basic, something, that, <laughs> something that he learned. I'll tell you a real quick story on him, but,
0: after the 86 championship game, when we lost on the 99-yard drive, that drive tied it, uh, we were in Art Modell's office, Patty and, and Marty and I and Pat and Art Modell. And all of a sudden, it just struck me that I said, oh, my God, my mother, you know, because I she was up in age and she would watch the games. And I, I, so I ran back to my office and uh, the caller to see if she was okay. And my mother said, or you're going to have to do something about that coach. So I I went back into the uh, room. <laughs> I went back into the room with with uh, Marty and Art, and I said, um, I just checked Marty. You're getting a lot of heat. He said, I expected that. I said from my mother, okay. But he was. Uh, we had that kind of relationship. He was just, you know, I I had complete trust in Marty, uh, on every on every issue we ever had. We didn't agree on everything particularly on personnel in the draft. And he had the final say I, I had, first of all, I didn't have a contract with Art. I had a handshake uh, and I got overruled in a few drafts, but was never hostile. There was never any rancor.
2: So let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of things that happened when you were a general manager. I want to start with Elway and just from this standpoint. I tried to make a point in my column this week, Ernie, that if Deshaun Watson does get traded, and I don't know that he will, but if he does get traded, we might see a compensation package, the likes of which we've never seen before. And I was just thinking that, you know, you've been involved with two huge uh, trades for quarterbacks, but when you hear about Watson, And when you see a twenty-five-year-old franchise quarterback uh, possibly being traded, what goes through your mind, and what, uh, how far can you go in making a trade before you totally, you know, sort of kind of hurt your team so much that having a great quarterback is not really so great anymore?
0: Well, Peter, you know, I wasn't involved in the Elway trade because it was done behind my back which is why i left the colts um, right but when when he made that statement i mean i had really done my homework i knew his baseball scattering report i had gotten it from the orioles bob bob neiman was really the scout in charge of Delway with the yankees and he had been with the st louis browns when hank peters was at the st louis browns and hank was the general manager of the orioles we were very close so i i knew he wasn't a prime baseball pro prospect and I knew what was going on. I knew Simon Brenner was uh, making a big play about this. And uh, but my feeling was this I called Joel Bussard from the NFL office. Right. And I said, what was the most compensation ever given for any player in a trade? And it was Jim Plunkett. It was two number ones, plus Joe Thomas gave all that for him from New England to go to San Francisco. <laughs> so I didn't want to trade L.A. I was willing to, to wait it out and wait until the season was over and then trade him before the draft. I couldn't draft him again, but I could trade him to anyone after after the season. But I would, I would have traded him if I would have gotten compensation to surpass the Plunkett trade. So I put a premium on three ones, two twos. One of the ones had to be in the current draft. It had to be in the top five because I was picking Marino. We had had Marino in the senior bowl and he loved Cush. He he was, you know, we talked to him about coming to Baltimore. He was a Pittsburgh guy. Uh, I thought we had to go in the top five to get him. And we came very close to a a three-way trade for that with Oakland and the Bears. But at the last minute, um, it, it, it fell through. So that was the compensation I put on that. So you're talking about three ones and two twos. And, and I think to answer your question, no one can predict the future, but when, you know, we're in the, we're in the business of, of at least projecting these guys in the future, we wouldn't be even involved with them. What would you have given for Elway after his career? Five Super Bowls. I mean, that's how you look at it. And, you know, what would you have given for, you know, Joe DiMaggio? I mean, when you have a great player who basically is going to be the, the center point of your championships. Uh, what price would you pay? And uh, I, I don't, you know, and, and Watson's different because he's already established. Elway was a rookie, but you know, I, I thought, I mean, I'm a student of the history of this league, just like you are. And, and uh, I was, you know, I felt he was the greatest quarterback prospect in my lifetime. Um, so I was, I wanted more, than anyone had ever given for a player. And that's pretty much, you know, why I came up with that price. Now, as it turned out, uh, when I drafted him, the owner didn't want him because, uh, and this sounds uh, puny by today's standards, but I told him it's going to cost us $5 million for five years. No one had paid anybody a million dollars a year. And he wasn't paying that. So after I, I I made a mistake saying that, because once I told him that, they traded him in two days without me knowing it. I found out on television. I was watching the NBA playoffs, and that's when they announced it on on television. And I called Frank Kush, and I said, "You watching the NBA playoffs?" He said, "No, I don't watch basketball." I said, "You better turn it on." They just traded our quarterback. So that's wow. how we found
2: out. <laughs> well, you know what I'll always remember about that, Ernie, is that you know uh, your owner really uh, did not do a good job as a general manager, you know, because he, he basically, uh, essentially traded, uh, Elway for, uh, you know, for, for basically two ones, Chris Hinton and Mark Herman, right. Is that, am I remembering that correct? Well, uh, yeah, I think he. I think he only got one one, and
0: and well, yeah, money, yeah,
2: because because yeah. that oh, that well, is it, the
0: one. It was the other one, yeah, yes. And you know what? I have to tell you why money was involved in this, and two preseason gates, and wow. two preseason games in Denver because the Colts I never knew that. Yeah, uh, we weren't drawn for, for, for preseason at that time, and uh, we got two two away games on you and, and that's when I look. We were we went zero eight and one in the uh, strike season. And I knew I was getting any, I was not gonna get any job off an of no 08 in one season. So I saw it through the season we went seven and nine. Actually, we were four and two and six and four at two points in that season. So I felt at least I had regained some kind of credibility after the eighty-three season, and that's when I went to Cleveland.
2: There have been a lot of trades throughout history that, you know, and I was looking up a few of them today. The one that shocked me more than anyone is when the Rams uh, traded John Hadle to Green Bay. um, I believe in the late seventies, but they traded John Hadle to Green Bay and Green Bay traded two ones and two twos for 35 year old John Hadle who had been benched for James Harris with the Rams. That to me, was one of the weirdest and most desperate trades I've seen. But over the years, there have been a lot of trades for quarterbacks. I mean, Fran Tarkenton obviously went back and forth to the Giants uh, and the Vikings, went from Minnesota to New York, uh, and then New York back to Minnesota. And and I thought his was an interesting comparison, because he was traded when he was really good at age 27, From Minnesota to the Giants for two ones and two twos and then when he was traded back uh it was it was a different it was a lesser a lesser trade but when I think about some of these trades I I I hate to say it I think they pale in comparison to trading a um a 25 year old franchise quarterback in his prime obviously so how do you look at if Watson is dealt, how do you look at him with some historical perspective?
0: Well, you're right, because most of the ones uh, that have had great impact were for older quarterbacks. For example, Tittle was traded from San Francisco to the Giants for Luke Leone. And even Luke Leone said, that's all you had to give to get Tittle, just me. <laughs> um, Van Brockman was, was traded Uh to the Eagles, and they want a championship with Van Brocklin. Um, the, the, you know, and these are all Bobby Lane was young, and Bobby Lane was interesting because uh, the Bears had the three L's: Luckman, Lou Jack, and Lane. And Luckman was near the end of his career, had won championships. Lou Jack was in, entering his prime, and Lane was young. So Hallis traded Lane to the New York Bulldogs. Now, I've read a, I've read a couple of books on Hallis. This has never been documented, but supposedly, at least in one of the books, he had gotten assurance, nothing in writing. Don't trade him to anyone in the Western Conference. Well, Lou Jack retired. Surprisingly, got hurt, retired, and the Bulldogs traded Lane to the Detroit Lions. And Bob Bobby Lane was young then, and and you know he haunted Halas for the whole decade of the fifties. won two championships really, um, but the there's another interesting trade. Tobin wrote was traded from the Packers where he was a pretty good player, but the Packers were so bad to the lions and won the championship in 1957. Um, So, you know, the plunker trade didn't work out. There were so many that did, but I I can't think of any where someone was just in the early stages of a brilliant career. uh, So you're right. I mean, he may bring compensation that, no one else has ever brought that that trade that had to green bay trade was made by don Klosterman. I, I think was one of the most underrated general managers people have completely forgotten him he came to baltimore made two trades he traded willie richardson for roy jefferson he traded oc austin and preston pearson for ray may those two trades won the super bowl if, if we don't get roy jefferson we do not win the super bowl uh, and I, we don't get to the Super Bowl in 1970. He was a tremendous evaluator of talent, has been largely forgotten, but that was a great haul that he got.
2: Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, you know, obviously the Eli Manning trade was weird because it basically involved three, um, it involved three, one of three quarterbacks that were picked very high in the draft that year, including... Philip Rivers and, and Ben Roethlisberger. But the one thing that, and, and you and I have talked about this on a couple of occasions, but that trade right at the end, you know, was, was very difficult because you and A.J. Smith, the general manager of the Chargers, had a major disagreement on what he was worth and on one particular player on your roster who you refused to trade. Tell that story. Yeah, I always, uh, you know, I'm very quarterback oriented.
0: Obviously, I came into the league with Unitas, but right beside the franchise quarterback and my priority are pass rushers. And, and you know, Cle- we didn't win or get to the Super Bowl in Cleveland because we did not have pass rushers. And I, and I said, that'll never happen to me again. And, you know, I drafted him till the Cows came home in, in New York. And I thought Union and are projected to be one of the great pass
2: rushers in the league. This is O.C. Uminiora, who was on your Minura. team, who, right. who, who, who A.J. Smith of the Chargers really wanted. Wanted. And he said, I don't make the deal with
0: you unless I get O.C. Now, understand we were fourth in the draft and we were very, very high on And Now, very possibly we could have lost because, uh, you know, Oakland and the Cardinals were ahead of us. And it was it was very possible we could have lost them. I was concerned about Oakland because I knew Al Davis was a quarterback guy um so it was not a bad fallback position for me uh those were the two quarterbacks and we had them very very close we preferred eli uh and he kept asking for oc and i kept saying i'm not going to make the deal and then i never heard from him again for the last week and thought well the trade's you know going to fall through and and as you know he called me halfway through the 15-minute waiting period and uh Usually we pick fast, but I waited. And um, when he called, he asked for O.C. I said, I don't know how many times I have to say this. I said, but you're not getting O.C. Now, we had already agreed that we would give up the following year's one with a few other picks. And uh, he said, well, will you give me next year's one? I said, yes. Now, here was the wrinkle in this trade, Peter, as you know. You can't draft draft a player for another team. So I couldn't tell Joel Bussard at the league office who was going to make the determination on this trade. I'm picking Philip Rivers for San Diego. That's not, that's not permitted. I had to pick Philip Rivers, period. He belonged to us. If If, if AJ dropped back out of the trade, we had Phil Rivers, not Ben Roethlisberger. So not that he would have been bad because he's had a great career but we wanted ben roethlisberger and you know what it's like when you have convictions you want a certain yeah um so we made the deal and i held my breath so we we both had to verbalize it orally because we were on the clock and we both did and we had to agree almost word for word and jolks accepted the trade and i remember him saying you have a trade we still had to send it in by computer but he did accept the trade so then we made the trade see i had asked him and I knew by rumor he wanted Rivers, but right. I asked him, I said, well, who do you want? Now, you're really not allowed to do that either, but I said, who do you want? And he said Rivers. So I, that, that's why we drafted Rivers, and we were able to trade him.
2: So just to refresh everyone's memory, San Diego had the first pick in the draft and took Eli Manning. You had the fourth pick in the draft and took Phillip Rivers, and then obviously this trade went down. Where you could have traded him. It led to one of the weirdest draft moments ever with Eli Manning and his family in a Chargers cap. <laughs> no. Well, that was the difference between Elway and Manning. Elway well, we never put a Colt cap on.
0: Of course, I didn't even have that stuff at that time. You no, know, I know he yeah. put the he put the and really, you know, he was in our office later that day
1: because he wow. was in New
0: York, that we were a New York franchise. So he just came right over with his family uh and, into our office. Yeah, it was a harrowing experience. You know, it's interesting. We only had four draft choices left for the next year, but we got Corey Webster, Brandon Jacobs, and Justin Tuck out of that draft. So wow. we hit we hit three pretty good players that helped us win the Super Bowls.
2: Yeah, uh, Ernie. One other question, just about that time. You know, I've always thought that somebody with the sense of history that you have must think a lot about you know, as time goes on and life goes on. And, and obviously you were gone from the Giants, you know, uh, I think three years after that, if I'm not mistaken, but you're gone from the Giants, but you always have a little piece of Eli Manning in your heart, don't you?
0: Yeah. You never forget players that you've picked. And uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, Brian Burke, who just became general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. They had him on uh, television the other day from his home and behind him were two frame jerseys of the Sandin brothers and he always talks about that was his greatest uh, draft where he got the two twin brothers who became Hall of Fame players and I, I was struck by it but uh, I have three jerseys in my house one is Unitas which of course I didn't draft but I was with the other one the other two are Kozar and Manning. and I mean you never forget uh players that you picked that worked out you do forget players that you picked (laughs) (laughs) but you
2: sure you're attached to them for life after that you know what i'll always remember about that weekend two things i was in oakland covering the draft from the raiders standpoint they had the second pick of the draft and the two things i'll never forget is one that's the weekend that pat tillman died and two the raiders with all those all those quarterbacks, picked Robert Gallery, a tackle from Iowa, who never could be an NFL tackle. He was he was He's a, a guard. good guard for a while, yeah. right? You know, he was a good guard for a while, but it was just and with and then with the quarterback stuff that happened, it was just an amazing. I don't know what why it's. I, I'll always kind of remember where I was when when I heard about Pat Tillman because I was so impacted by his death and by a guy who when you think about it gave up the ability gave up a three-year nine million dollar contract with the Arizona Cardinals in free agency to go train as an army ranger and to go to Afghanistan and then to unfortunately obviously die by friendly fire and that kind of—I don't know if you remembered. Maybe, maybe it, it didn't seem that way to you, but it kind of cast a pall over the whole draft.
0: It did, and I do remember. we uh, we had played uh, the Cardinals the season before, and I remember they hurt the the kicker got injured celebrating, and he had to be the place kicker in that game. It just shows you, wow, what what he was. You know, I mean that was minor compared to what he ensuing life c- consisted of, but. But uh, what a great human being and a great man, I mean, to give up what he gave up, number one, and then to put himself in, in jeopardy in, in warfare and in combat, which is the ultimate, uh, ultimate threat to your life. And yeah, I remember that very, very well. And, uh, you know, that's why when when the draft was coming up, and we, you, you think a worst case scenario, you always prepare yourself for worst case, but you always know that you might be misled by the Raiders and that's what was worrying me about uh, with Roethlisberger because I thought they're not going to pick a guard. You know, they're going to pick a quarterback, and yeah. and uh, no matter what the signals are, they can they can send out missed signals just like anybody else.
2: You know, Ernie, I'll never forget on that Friday before the draft. I think I'm pretty sure the draft was on Saturday and Sunday in those days. That was 2004, but whatever it was, the day before the draft, I was in there and. The day previously, so let's say that would be Thursday, Eli Manning was in their offices and Al loved him, just loved him. He loved his humility. Uh, he just loved him and he wouldn't, he didn't tell me anything the day before the draft about what they were going to do. I had no idea what they were going to do, but I really thought once I heard how smitten he was with Eli, I said, he might shock the world and take Eli Manning if he's there. Now it turns out he never had that opportunity, but that's why draft stories are so interesting over the years. What could have happened, what did happen and how much it affects the future, you know, in so many ways. I mean, what happens in 2017 if the bears don't take Trubisky, what if they take either uh, Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes, you know, football history is, incredibly different from from uh you know from what it obviously became well how about this Peter and
0: this is for a franchise that drafted better than anyone in our league's history for a brief period that built four Super Bowl teams the Steelers had Unitas already and they had picked him in 1955 they passed up Lenny Moore in 1956 and they passed up Jim Brown in 1957 and they could have had Lenny wow. Moore, Unitas, and Jim Brown in the same backfield. You and oh, I could have God. been – on. you and I could have <laughs> alternated at the other halfback and they would have won. Can, can you imagine that? I mean, that's the amazing. amazing
1: thing about – really And if is. you go
0: back and look at how the sequence of players being picked by teams, it's fascinating.
2: Yeah, yeah. If you, if you were uh, Houston general manager Nick Casario and you were in the spot that you're in, you know, you just parachute in. You get this job, and they say, "Oh, by the way, uh, we're at war with her, with our franchise quarterback." I mean, what do you think you'd do, Ernie? And if if Casario is sitting with you right now, what would you tell him? I think I would see if that parachute could go back up to the
0: airplane. Okay, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't think I would want to be in that situation. <laughs> I don't know what to, you know. What I, I don't know what he's going to do because I don't know you know, I just don't, I don't know the player as a person. I don't know, Nick, I, I don't know the ownership. So yeah. I don't know what I would do. I wouldn't want to be in it. I could tell you
2: that. Yeah. Um, as we go, I want to ask you one football history question. There's a player in history who totally fascinates me and it's Otto Graham. And one of the reasons it fascinates me is that I'm a firm believer that being a quarterback is not about putting up Matthew Stafford numbers. It's about winning Tom Brady playoff games, you know, and uh, and I think Matthew Stafford is is a very good player. But the fact is, he's been in the league 12 years, hasn't won anything. But Otto Graham, when he broke into professional football in 1946, he played for 10 years. And in those four years in the All-America Football Conference and six years in the NFL, his team made the championship game of his league all 10 seasons. They won seven. He won four passing titles. And I always think that one of the things that sort of we do as a football society is we just totally vastly underrate history. Like Otto Graham should be what Lou Gehrig was in baseball or, or who, you know, Mickey Mantle or whatever, but nobody regards him. Not many people regard him as one of the all-time greats. I'm just curious, how do you view older players who were really great in their time versus today's players?
0: Well, I, I'm a, you know, a traditionalist and I, I have trouble comparing uh, Tom Brady to Otto Graham because they played a different different eras, that right but I have when I talked about the all-time great quarterbacks that I have seen from my early years particularly I have I have Graham United Unitas one and two and you know the thing about Graham he wins nine and he, he, he was in nine straight championship games and retired
2: yeah. and
0: Paul, Paul Brown thought he was okay because he had George Ratterman what they didn't know they knew Raderman was in an auto accident. They didn't realize he had wrecked his shoulder. There were no MRIs. But when he got to camp, he couldn't throw in 1955. And he called auto back. He said, "Would you come back for one more year, he came back, won the championship. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this as far as comparing errors. First of all, I have, great res- I have great respect for Luckman, and I never saw him play. I saw every Hall of Fame key formation quarterback play, at least on, t- on television except Luckman. I saw Ball, too, but I don't remember. I was just a little kid. I saw the rest. I saw Grant play a lot. But I was just thinking about this the other day, and I might be wrong, but I saw Unitas probably play 75% of the games he played. They were on television every week in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. They were on television every week in college in North Carolina where I went to college. I came back. I worked in Baltimore, and then I worked for the Colts. Now, I missed some games, but not many. I don't ever remember him being on the field with three wide receivers. I don't remember. I remember, I remember full house backfield in his early years with Dupre Moore, and Meechie. I remember two tight ends. I never remember three wide receivers. Now it might've happened, but when you think about that, he played a different game than they do today. But Graham, uh, see, I think Bobby Lane's underrated too. He beat Graham twice. Right uh, and, and in, Detroit, in the
2: championship, game, in championship right.
0: game. Yeah. And Detroit is the, I mean, buddy Parker's the only coach that ever had a winning record against Paul Brown. while Paul Brown was in Cleveland. I just so, hate the fact that buddy Parker's not in the hall of fame. I, I, I hate it. I agree too. I really think yeah. he was a hall of fame coach, but I, yeah. I love Graham. Graham was Graham was just a fantastic player. I, I really think other than the bill Russell Chamberlain era, um, uh, I don't think it exists anymore. I think Jordan changed the game, but I think the quarterback has more to do with winning than any player, any position and any sport, other than, like I said, the center in the fifties when Bill Russell was winning 11 titles in 13 years. Yeah. But other than that, the quarterback, you know, you look at all the championship quarterbacks all through the years. And with the exception of six or seven, they're all either hall of famers or near hall of famers.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. I, you're absolutely right when you say it's so hard to judge one era versus another but I guess I would also say that you know like when I when I talk to people about receivers and I say now you you can't just automatically hand it to Jerry Rice you got to consider Don Hudson and if you want to say that Rice is better and that whoever is better that's fine but just at least understand that when Don Hudson retired in 1945, his record for 99 touchdowns stood for 44 years. And, you know, so you've got to, you got to at least allow for kind of the recounting and the appreciation of history. And that's why a lot of times when I talk to people about the history of the game, I'm a little bit sad because I don't think people, I think people think history started with, Uh, you know, Bart Starr in the Ice Bowl or something, or the, you know, it's, it's that football history is 55 years, you know, the Super Bowl era versus the first 46 years, I guess it would be, you know, which was obviously everything else and such a a really wonderful time in, uh, in sports history. Championship games, which were marvelous in the
0: fifties have been largely forgotten before the Super Bowl except yeah. for the other but they mostly and that wasn't even you know the, the ultimate championship game there was a the Super Bowl after that yeah
2: um, hey well listen Ernie appreciate the uh, historical perspective thanks a million for joining me and uh, we'll see you down the road all right thanks Peter thanks for having me on my thanks to Mike Tannenbaum and Ernie Acorsi, uh really learned a lot on both counts history from coursey and how to hold a hard line, quite honestly, from Mike Tannenbaum. One other thing I want to uh, tell you that you should look out for, um, both on the NBC Sports YouTube channel and at NBCSports.com, Tony Dungy, uh, who's, who's done a couple of these this year, they're very good, very informative. Tony does a great panel on the state of minority coaching in college football. He's got Uh, the coach of the University of Maryland, Mike Loxley, and the former Notre Dame coach, Ty Willingham. They're both with Tony Dungy talking about the state of minority coaching in the college ranks. So make sure you check that out. And I'll be back next week with another podcast in this, what's shaping up to be a very active, very strange NFL offseason.